invite you to take a Bible and turn once again to the brief letter of First Peter, almost at the end of the New Testament. We're on page 1015 in these Bibles from the pews. First Peter chapter 2. This summer, if you've been here, we've uh, been studying uh, this, this brief letter written by uh, Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus. He was the Galilean fisherman who left his uh, nets and the fishing business to follow Christ. Uh, he was the one who became the informal leader of the disciples. We find that in the ministry of Jesus, in the accounts in the Gospels, sometimes when the critics of Jesus would come and ask questions, they would direct them to Peter rather than speaking directly to Jesus. They talked to him. So he was seen as a leader. He denied Jesus on the night of his arrest. Then, after the resurrection of Christ, we have the account at the end of John's Gospel where he is restored to ministry. Not long after the ascension of Jesus into heaven, Peter preached to a massive crowd in the city of Jerusalem. And the book of Acts records that over 3,000 people were converted in that one, on that one occasion. In fact, most of uh, the ministry of Peter is found in the first eight chapters of the, the book of Acts. It tells about how God used him and others in Jerusalem and around there before really focusing on the Gentiles through the ministry of the Apostle Paul through the rest of that book. Uh, he's writing this letter to, to Christians who are, who are in a hostile culture. They're in a culture that's very opposed to what they believe, uh, it was a time of persecution that was just really starting at that time under the Roman emperors. I finished seminary, and uh, people tell us today, don't call it seminary, call it graduate school, because seminary scares people. Uh, I finished graduate school 32 years ago, and the main task God called me to was the teaching of the Bible. And so I have taught in home Bible studies, small groups, fraternity houses, dorms in colleges, um, from the pulpit here in various classes and lessons here through this church and elsewhere. Uh, I have taught First Peter a number of times, but it's been seven years since I last did so. Uh, and everything's different. Now everything is different. I'm understanding more of what the first century believers were experiencing and why Peter writes certain things to them. If you study history, you know that for probably 1,800 years that the Western world has had a favored, favorable view toward the Christian faith. It influenced many of our laws, the way we uh, treat one another, a lot of our basic assumptions. It, it was the founding principles of most of the um, institutions of higher learning here in the United States. And so even though we know about the mass persecution of Christians in the 20th century and the incredible numbers of people that were put to death for their faith, we tend to think about that mainly as occurring in the Middle East and in North Africa and in parts of Asia, including China and in Eastern Europe. But all that has changed, and now there's open hostility toward the Christian faith in the Western world, especially in the larger cities, but even in small towns. And so First Peter is back in style. It's just like your green carpet and your yellow refrigerator. It has come back around. 
because it's answering the question, how can you and I live as faithful believers in a hostile culture? Now, let's look for a moment. This is a continuation of something I started last week, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 2. Hear God's word. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray together. Our Father, you have said that your word is spiritual food. And we ask now that you would feed our hungry souls. Give us direction. We pray for strength for those seated here today that are quietly and behind the scenes, perhaps suffering abuse for their faith, uh, even hostility in the workplace or in the home. We ask that you would equip us to serve you in our generation in this time, that we would be salt and light. In Jesus' name, amen. The key thought as we come to this passage in a whole section on submission, and we just looked at the first few verses, and then there's much more that's going to come behind it. The key thought is that we are aliens and strangers in this world. That's what he says in verse 11. Now, I, it says they're sojourners and exiles. I say aliens and strangers. They mean the same thing. Many of us tend to prefer the version of the Bible that we had when we became Christians and what we read then. For me, it was the New American Standard Version. I like the ESV, and there are a lot of reasons to use it, but I think in terms of the New American Standard. So if you hear me say aliens and strangers, it means the same thing as this. It's just that's what I learned long ago. But we are aliens and strangers in this world. And so we've been told in these verses last week, uh, verses 11 and following, we need to abstain from the passions of the flesh. These are desires that will compete with our allegiance to Christ. Verse 12 taught us to live such good lives among unbelievers that even though we will be falsely accused, there will be those that will see the good deeds and glorify God when he returns. So we can play a part in how we live, not just how we live, but in how we live, in helping unbelievers to understand the gospel and to believe. It says here we are to advertise God's virtues. We are to proclaim what God has done. How can we do that? Well, especially when we are falsely accused. I mentioned that in the early, the early church, uh, they were falsely accused for many things. They were accused of cannibalism because they said that they ate the body and, and drank the body and blood of Christ at the communion service. Then they were, because they called one another Christian brothers and sisters and had the same father, they were accused of incest. Because they did not bow down to the emperor, they were accused of insurrection and rebellion. 
So how can we witness? How can we witness for God in such a hostile atmosphere? And what Peter does is the same thing Paul does, which is the same thing Jesus does. Before he gives us directives on how we are to live, he wants us to understand who we are. That is critical. So when you come to 1 Peter, the first chapter that we covered earlier stresses who you are. You are the elect of the sovereign God. Then we come to verse 9. You are the chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession. He is dealing with who we are in Christ. Before he says, now, therefore, based on who you are, this is how you should live. You're an elect people. You're a holy nation. So how do we come to be? Aliens and sojourners, sojourners and exiles. How do we come? Well, we become citizens of heaven. We know that our ancient foreparents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. God gave them a perfect life. He created them in his image. They had perfect unity. They had perfect harmony. They literally walked and talked with God in the garden. God gave them one prohibition. He said, you can eat from all these various trees and plants from the garden except that particular one right there. Well, they violated that, and that was the first sin. The word sin means to miss the mark. They missed the mark when they did that. And God had, God had threatened, basically, said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, they didn't drop dead physically, but they died spiritually. So now there was separation between them and God. And even as God came, he, he curses the, the serpent who had tempted them, and he pronounces a curse on him, and he, and he gives a curse that there'll be great pain in childbirth. And for Adam, he says, now the work that you've been doing is going to be very, from here on out, it's going to be very, very inefficient and frustrating. So when, you're very when you feel your work is inefficient and frustrating, think you've got Adam to thank for that. <laughs> Go back to the opening chapters of Genesis. And God promises right then, he, he, he gives a threat to the serpent. He said, he, he's speaking of someone in the future, he says, you're going to bruise him on the heel, but he's going to bruise you on the head. And if you only had that verse, you say, who is God talking about? He's not talking about Adam. He's not talking about the serpent directly. He's not talking about the woman who Adam calls Eve. He's talking about the Redeemer. He's talking about Jesus Christ that would come. So centuries later, Christ comes. He fulfills over 300 prophecies that were told about his birth, about his life, about his death, about his resurrection, about all sorts of things, the things that he would do, and they're fulfilled in this one man, 300, 300 prophecies. He said, I came down from the Father, I always do those things that are pleasing to my Father. I came down from heaven, he said, and then he allowed himself to be crucified. He was put on a Roman cross, and on that cross, God took our sin, took my sin, put him on him, and punished Put those sins on him and punish those sins in his place. He died fully. He paid the penalty for sin, which was death. Three days later, he rose from the dead, and he appeared for over 40 days to roughly around 2,000 people in a variety of settings. The last command he gave to his disciples was to go into all the world and make disciples, of telling people what God had done. So now when we believe that, we are transferred, our citizenship, our status before God changes. We are transferred, it says, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. It is instantaneous from going from a non-Christian to a Christian, from being an unbeliever to a believer. For any Christian here, your conversion was instantaneous. You may not know exactly when it happened. I don't, for me. I'll find that out in heaven. It's really not that important. But at some point in time, that happened. 
Now, it may have taken years to come about, but it happened, and when that happened, you become a citizen of heaven, and therefore this world suddenly is, is a strange place. And Christians have a weird relationship with the world. Scripturally, we have a weird relationship with the world. We're to love people, we're to care for them and show compassion, and yet Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. We're to try to reach people, and yet knowing that many will refuse that. And we also know that I am just here for a little while. Because Christ has gone to prepare a place for me, and he's going to return and take me where I will be with him forever. So when someone says, you know, I just don't get all this Christian stuff y'all talk about. I don't get this realm of faith. I want more out of this life. I want the big house. I want the big trips. I want the perfect marriage. I want to I make a lot of money. Y'all don't want much. You're living for something I want a whole lot. I would respond back to you, in the words of C.S. Lewis, your trouble is you don't want enough. Your trouble is you're going to be too easily satisfied with the big house, with the big jobs, with all that, with the lots of money. When Christ said, I go to prepare a place for you where you will be with me forever, I would say you need to set your sights higher. So at some point in time, we go from darkness to light. And it's, it's instantaneous, but we are one or the other. All of you here, you are either a believer or an unbeliever in the biblical language. You're either a Christian or a non-Christian. And liberal theology, I'm not talking about liberal politics, liberal theology hates that notion. Because in that, we're all on the same path. We'll get there different ways. As one liberal theologian I heard say, a pastor, say, we're like in a large, uh, he said Safeway, it was in a different state. We're in a large Kroger, you know, and there's the Islamic aisle and here's the Buddhist, but we're all going to end up at the same checkout. Well, Christ said he was, he was the, the only way to God. Um, John Piper, uh, I heard him say how he met with a, a pastor of the largest church in Minneapolis who had been very critical toward their ministry there. And, and uh, he, he said, look, how did, because they were doing evangelism. Uh, and, and he said to the guy, how do you deal with this in the Bible? And the man said, look, what's important in the Bible is the overarching theme. Just we're to love everybody. That's all. I don't get distracted with these specific things you're pointing out, like about heaven and hell and so forth. So we either are or not, and once we are, Peter says we are citizens of heaven. Now, I want to press this one uh, a little bit further before we look at the text. As a pastor, I have stood up here, not in the pulpit, but on this platform many, many times. I don't know if it's in the hundreds, but doing weddings here in this church. Now, I've told you before that, that it's, I'm kind of amused by when I stand with, with the groom and his best man outside before the service, I tell him, you know, in the moment you're, you're standing before God's going to change. Some things that are sinful now for you will be okay, and some things that are okay now are going to be sinful in about 10 minutes. <laughs> maybe it's the, maybe it's, I don't know. That's the sadistic side of me that likes to watch their reactions sometimes. <laughs> but sometimes when I'm doing the wedding, the service, and I have, I have the book, and, and don't think I'm distracted like this in weddings all the time, but I'm wondering, when exactly are they married? At some point in that ceremony, legally, let's just say legally, they become husband and wife. Is it right after the vows is it after the prayer for the vows? Or is it when I pronounce, now by the authority committed to me as a minister and of the state, 
You are now husband. I guess it's at that point. Boom, right then. Right then, they are husband and wife. Months, perhaps, of planning this, this ceremony and all that. And then instantly it changes. That is exactly why, like becoming a believer. That we are transferred, we are changed, and suddenly I become a citizen. Like when a person applies for citizenship in America. And they have to do all these things, and they pass these tests, and they pay this money. But they don't earn that. It's bestowed on them. Citizenship is bestowed on this person. And with that comes rights and privileges. And now they see this country differently. That's what happens to us. If you ever go up to somebody and say, are you married? And they go, you know, I'm not sure. I think I'm getting there. Well, I'm working on it. Then there are two things. One is question the person's stability. But second... They're not. Because <laughs> if you are, you know. And so when I meet someone, well, are you a Christian? Well, you know, I don't know. I'm working on it. I'm thinking about it. Uh, I'm not questioning your stability, but you're not. You, you, you will be. You, you will know, and you'll be a citizen of heaven. Now, that has to be straight first. If you <coughs> think that, well, to be a Christian is just to do certain things, so now Peter's going to tell us to do certain things. That will only frustrate you, and then you'll have a self-righteousness that you think somehow or another I'm earning my way to God. And I think, obviously, Christian parents, as you raise your children, you've got to do just like Peter and Paul and Christ. You've got to tell your kids, why? Who are you? The truths, the doctrine, the dogma, which our culture has dogma all over the place. When people say, well, I don't believe in... In dogma, <laughs> you just made a dogmatic statement. Yes, you do. It's, it's everywhere. But you've got to teach them why before you say, now do this. Or else it's just a shell. It's just morality. It's just something like that that they can easily walk away from because it, it doesn't seem to fit with the culture. Okay, enough. That's an introduction. Now, quickly, just a few observations on the passage beginning in verse 13. He's going to talk about good deeds. He's talking about, you know, when you're falsely accused, they will see good deeds. Now, the good deeds fall under the main heading of be subject to or submission. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. The term be subject is a military term, meaning to fall in rank under an authority. Submission does not imply that a person who submits to authority loses his or her identity, but that you recognize certain authority is given, has been instituted by God. So Peter begins now in mentioning authorities in general. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Then he, that, that's a broad term. I mean, that refers to the common social orders in any society. Peter knew that I mean, he was writing at a certain time in a certain place. This is a general principle. He knew that there are various cultures and various times. But in any culture, you will have government of some type, you will have the household of some type, and you will have some type of working relationships. There will be all of those. So when he says all human institutions, it doesn't mean every little club and ordinance that's there, but the general structural uh, institutions that God has ordained. We need to recognize that in their general character, such institutions are in harmony with God's will. Now, note first, when he says be subject for the Lord's sake, we're not to be forced into submission. 
We don't have to be coerced into submission. Why? Because we're sojourners and exiles. And submission is something we are to initiate. We're to submit ourselves to every ordinance uh, of man. I told you one of the books I'm using is R.C. Sproul's excellent book on 1 Peter. I hope you get it if you don't already have it. Uh, and that's influenced a lot of what I say, but I'm not going to do verbal footnoting. I'm telling you now, that's where a lot of this comes from, beginning at this point. But he tells in that book of how he and his wife live in Orlando. And in the particular area where they live, there are a lot of stop signs. And he says, I don't know who paid for them because eight out of ten drivers never even slow down at those stop signs. And he says one day he was riding with a Christian. Uh, the man was driving. R.C. was riding with him. And he just ran right through, didn't even slow down, one of those stop signs. And so R.C.'s bro says, didn't you see that stop sign? And the man replied back, yes, but I'm not going to let a little bit of tin and red paint control my behavior. Well, Peter's saying that should not be our attitude. Is that the way you view stop signs? Look, I'm not going to let a little paint and some metal on a green pole affect my behavior. Second, Peter says we're to submit to every ordinance of man, but there are qualifications. We are to do so unless those ordinances prohibit us from doing what God commands or command us to do what God forbids. So we do not... We are not obligated to obey and to submit if they are commanding us to do something that God prohibits or prohibits us from doing something that God commands. Peter is the perfect example of that. The author of these words earlier in Acts chapter 4 and 5. I told you the early part of Acts is about the ministry of Peter. He's preached and 3,000 people have been converted. They've been added to the church and the Jewish council calls them in. Peter and the other early disciples, the early apostles with him. And he gives a defense to them why they're doing this. And they tell him, stop. Stop preaching in the name of Jesus or else. And in Acts 4, 19 and following, Peter says back, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop preaching what we have seen and heard. So here's the author of these words saying be subject to every human institution. Here's an example in front of that human institution, this court, of him saying when they've been told don't preach in the name of Jesus, he said you be the judge uh, of everything, but we cannot stop preaching. Now, they let them go. They go back out into the streets. They immediately begin to preach again. They don't incite anarchy. They don't slander the court. They don't even say the court is made up of bad people. They just go about what they were doing. So why does Peter tell us to be subject in this verse? Back at the verse again, 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. There's a lot in that phrase, for the Lord's sake. We're not to be subject for our own sake. We're not to be subject for someone else's sake. We're to be subject for the Lord's sake. Now, to understand what this means and why this is important, let me give you a little bit of the scope of, of how the Bible speaks of authority and submission and obedience. God created all that exists, according to the Bible. He rules over everything. He rules over our universe, and he doesn't do so by referendum. He doesn't do this by USA Today survey. He doesn't take polls. 
There is a structure of authority in the universe, and it is hierarchical, according to the scriptures. It is not a democracy. At the top of this structure, this hierarchy of authority, is the sovereign God. And he rules and he reigns from this top position. And he's delegated all authority in heaven and on earth to his son, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So at the top, you might say, is Christ. Now, way down, you come to emperors and kings, and at that time, you had a Roman emperor whose name was Nero. Now, in the Bible, Satan is intimately and frequently called and identified with lawlessness, lawlessness or rebellion. And so when our ancient foreparents rebelled against God, that was an act of lawlessness. That's what the Bible calls it, even though there was a law, don't eat of that certain tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. By breaking that command, that is lawlessness. So every time that you and I do not submit to the rules over us, we are, in, the, in a general sense, casting our vote with lawlessness. And every time we go out of our way to submit, we bear witness to the one whose law stands above every law. So when you obey your employer, when you obey your, obey your school teacher, when you honor your parents, when you give honor to those who are worthy of honor, you honor Christ. You are honoring Christ by doing that because he reigns over the whole universe. So by submitting here in a low level, I'm ultimately submitting to the high level. Does that make sense? If you, if you don't at least get a basic grasp of this, this stuff does not make sense. It doesn't fit together, especially that statement, do this for the Lord's sake. So that's where the word honor comes into play. By honoring you, if you're in a position over me, I am honoring Christ. So we are subject to you for the Lord's sake. When we were strangers to the kingdom of God, we walked according to the course of this world. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the lust of our flesh, just like the rest of the world. And yet God now puts within us a new inclination as his children, a desire to please God rather than to disobey. So we offer submission not to be doormats, not to be walked on, but by submitting here, I'm showing my commitment to my king my ultimate king. Now here are some examples, quickly, of submission. First, emperors and governors, or your translations say emperors or kings. They are to be regarded as being given their place and function by God. And then the governors under them. Now what is the God-ordained role of government? Today in America, a lot of people are confused about that. If you were to say, what is the role of government, just basically? Some think, well, it's to provide for everybody's needs. It's a very socialistic view. Well, biblically, that's not, that's not really it. The Bible is very clear, very simply clear on the basic role of government. And the pivotal passage is Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. If anyone asks you, what's the Bible say about government? That's, if you're on a game show and the $100 question is, where's the Bible speak about? You say Romans 13, 1 to 5. Let me read it to you. It's easy to understand, and it's really paraphrased here in 1 Peter. Paul writes, and this is interesting, he's in prison, and he later will be put to death in Rome, but he writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. 
For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Well, according to this, and other places in Scripture, all government has two, as a twofold purpose. One is to reward those who do good. Commend and reward those who do good, and it is to punish wrongdoers. That's what you have in Romans 13. Reward those who, good, who do good and punish wrongdoers. And then it says they bear the sword. What does that mean? It means two things. It means that the government has the power to carry out capital punishment, and it has the power to declare just warfare. All that's in Romans 13, 1 to 5. Reward those who do good, punish those who do wrong. It bears the sword, meaning it has the power to carry out capital punishment, and secondly, it has the power uh, to, to proclaim justifiable, to carry out just warfare. Now, that's God's ultimate purpose. And we may say, well, Peter had it easy. I mean, he was in a well-ordered Roman Empire. I mean, they had their... They had their soldiers all over the world. The king must have been a good person. No, who did I say earlier who it was? Nero. Now, just let me read you from the, a Bible encyclopedia about Nero. He was just three years old when his father died. It was little lost to the boy since his father had been a murderer, a bully, and a cheat. His mother took over the family's trade and continued the boy's education. She murdered his stepfather with some poison mushrooms. While still young, he committed his first murder. He killed a teenage boy who stood in his way, and he watched him die with calloused indifference. He married at age 15, but soon had that wife killed. He married again and killed his second wife, too. In order to marry the third time, he murdered the husband of the woman he wanted. His mother annoyed him, so he arranged her murder. At the age of 31, he was sentenced to death by flogging. But he escaped to the house of a slave and cut his own throat, which he survived. He gave the infant church its first taste of things to come. His name was Nero, and he was the first of the persecuting Caesars. And it was while this man was emperor that Peter said, Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. So it's important that we respect the office even when we may not respect the person in the office. Peter's telling us to cooperate and obey the law but we must never allow that law to violate our consciences or disobey God's word. We have to be careful. I've been around, years I've been a Christian, I've met many people, some pastors, some who, some don't pay their income taxes because they feel the, uh, you know, the, they don't believe in what the government does with the money and so forth, and there's that argument. And I've been in a presbytery, which is a geographical area of, of leaders from churches, and one time in, uh, up near Tennessee, and uh, one of the pastors and some of his elders in small church he had planted, they weren't paying income taxes, and they wanted, uh, they wanted the presbytery to back them and support them. And we said, no way. 
we didn't see they were, being they were getting ready to be persecuted, not for their faith, but because of violating the law. Uh, I'm not sure if he didn't go to prison. But we have codes. There are building codes that exist. There are fire codes. When we built Fellowship Hall over there years ago, uh, I don't know what the number is, but the fire chief makes a determination as to how many people that can safely occupy that room at one time. I don't know what the number is. Let's just choose one. Let's say it's 450 people. Well, let's imagine that we're meeting for worship in there, and we have 600 people. And so we began to meet there regularly, and the fire code we've just we've gone against. They said, you've got too many people in here. So the fire chief comes over. He does come on Wednesdays for our luncheon, but he shows up one Sunday. And he says, uh, too many people. You can't do this. You're, you're, you're persecuting us. You don't want us to worship God. No, no, that has nothing to do with that. I'm concerned about your safety. Yes, you are. You're persecuting us. You're doing what First Peter says. We're not going to obey you. Is that persecution for your faith? No. None, none whatsoever. Uh, it, it's, it, he, they're doing it, hopefully, ideally, for safety purposes. So let's be clear to differentiate what's really persecution and what isn't. And if it isn't, if it, if it is for the faith, we must carry on. We must go on. And he says, the result of doing this in verse 15, you will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And that word put to silence means to muzzle. So we're to live as people who are free in Christ. In Christ we have freedom. Through the Son we are made free. So you can be put, I can be put in the darkest dungeon, and I'll still be the freest man on earth. You are the heir to the greatest fortune, and it cannot be taken from you. You are free. All a cruel government can do to a believer is to give you another opportunity to trust God and to prove him faithful. That's all the government can do to you. External authorities have no power over you. All they can do is kill you and send you to heaven. That's it. And Paul's saying, we're free. But don't use your freedom as an excuse. Last four key injunctions. Talk about an economy of words in a verse. Verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. Doesn't even really explain them. Honor everyone means to esteem highly. Doesn't matter slave or free, race, educational background, low class, high class, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers, the individual believers, the fellowship of believers. We don't simply honor one another, we're to love one another. Fear God. The only one listed here we are to fear. We don't even fear the king. We don't fear one another. We only fear him. Fear him and you will have nothing else to fear, someone once wrote. Honor the emperor. We're not to worship the emperor. We're not to worship the king. We're not to fear the king. But we are to show them honor. Now you can do these things because of who you are. If you're in Christ, you're a citizen of heaven. You're an alien and a stranger. And you're only here for a little while. And so if you're trying to be a witness for Christ, look long and hard at how you conduct yourself in the work arena or in the family or in the school. Are you submitting in a Christ-like way? Student, you know what the best testimony you can have to your professor? Do your work diligence, diligently. Do what Colossians 3 says. Whatever you do, do your work diligently as unto the Lord and not for men. Do that. When I was a student in college, and I was in a campus ministry, and we all wanted, we wanted to have a testimony in the classroom. And for me, being a speech major, and we gave lots of speeches, it was getting Josh McDowell's book, coming up with some Christian speech, and giving that. 
The professors began to catch on to that, that some of us that are Christians were not doing all of our homework because we had some of these books that had already been prepared that, that gave us all the bibliographies and so forth. Uh, my favorite professor in the speech department, I was a major, you would, you'd never know that, uh, at the University of Alabama, was named Dr. Culpepper Clark. PhD from Emory, hated Christianity. And he would give us a hard time in class, and especially out of class. If I ran into him around, he would just give me a hard time uh, in front of everybody for being a Christian. Uh, by the way, he wrote my recommendation to graduate school, to seminary, when I went. I got him to write the recommendation. I was in it, you know, when you're a major, by the time you're a senior and a fifth-year senior as I was, you get to know the professors real well because now your classes are small, you're down to about 12 people. So I'd go by his, his office, and I was sitting in his office one day, and we were talking, and he just kind of looked up. He said, the thing about you guys, me and another guy named Russ, we were the two Christians that he knew of in the department, he said, I can't figure out this whole realm of faith. Why are y'all interested in this? Why are you interested in this? Then he kind of gazed off, and he, well, he looked at me and he said, but you know what? You know what? Russ Cox, he was the other guy, is a blanking good student. That was it. And I knew all we have, all we have as far as a foothold with this guy is the fact that we've tried to be good students. He didn't care what we talked about. He'd seen the behavior that we were trying to submit to him and, and do well in school. Second example. How many of us like jury duty? Don't raise your hand. I've been called up twice in the past couple of years. And each time, I am, each time I'm called up, I remember this story. I've told you that my dad, who was a lawyer and later a judge and did not become a Christian until late in life, he didn't think much of preachers. Seriously. I mean, that was a major deal when I decided to go to graduate school. <laughs> I'm going to get you all to start saying it with me. Seminary. Jim Baird was the pastor at our church before he came over here and became famous. <laughs> their kids, their boys, were all little at that time. And my dad and his cronies down at the courthouse, I remember he told me this years after this, years after that. He said, I don't know about whether he can preach or not. You know, talking about Reverend Baird. And he said, I don't know about that, people talk about, but I know this. His wife got a jury summons, and he came down to the courthouse, and he begged them, said, please, please, we've got four kids at home in diapers. Don't make her come. I'll come in her place. That's what they noticed. Could not he have gone down and said, this is a hardship. I've got, we've got to get out, you know, take her off the list. Isn't there some out, some exemption? But they noticed. They noticed. There's a preacher, and he's coming down here trying to help out. And he's saying, let her off the hook. Let me come. I can't stay home with them. Let me do it. Want to be a witness for Christ? Show honorable submission to the governing authorities. And then when we're maligned and they say, well, you're committed to hate crime. You think every child needs a father and a mother? That's hate crime. Preacher. Or like in Denmark, where, or Sweden, where you have to do gay marriages on all the churches. Then, then they'll say, but you know, he doesn't act that way. He served in jury duty. He's never broken the law. He's kind of helped out. Let's pray together.
Father, some of us here may be being oppressed right now, even abused in our situation. We pray for help. Pray you give them strength today. We'll look toward you. And uh, we pray you'd help us to be salt and light in the world. Help us not to be cavalier about obedience to the law. Uh, help us to be diligent knowing that how we respond to authority is ultimately how we respond to you. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.